All right, so tonight we are doing Baptist Catechism question number 92. Uh, what is repentance unto life? And so our answer, according to the catechism, and I have uh, just kind of altered this slightly to make it sound a little bit more modern in a language that we can understand. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with great hatred of his sin turn away from it and towards God with full purpose of and effort towards new obedience. So uh, tonight I hope that this doctrine, while it is in some ways very simple and straightforward, that there might be nuances of it that we haven't thought too much about, or there might be misconceptions of how repentance weaves into not only the beginning of our life in Christ, but our daily walk with our Savior as we strive to be near to Him and to, to glorify Him with every thought, action, and deed. Um, there is a reason why question number 92 is not simply, what is repentance? There are different kinds of repentance, not all of which are repentance unto life. So let's begin tonight at first by identifying what repentance unto life is not. So repentance unto life is not simply sorrow for sin. Um, sorrow is a component of repentance, but when we think about repentance, we ought not think of it simply as a feeling that we have when we get into trouble or when somebody finds us out in our sin. I can actually feel quite sorry for my sin and continue on in my sin. The, the human heart has the capacity to just simply deal with guilt on the fly and to persist in rebellion against God. So true repentance is therefore more than a feeling. It has to go beyond that. How sorry would you have to feel if repentance unto life was a feeling? Who could answer that question? Sorrow, of course, is an aspect of our repentance, and we're going to talk about how somebody who repents of a sin but has no internal sorrow for it or grief about it would really need to question whether their repentance is authentic or not. But the sorrow, the feelings of remorse and guilt and shame are not themselves repentance unto life. Repentance unto life is also not simply our efforts to do better when we recognize that we have done something that displeases God. Our best efforts without the grace of God revealing to us his will are not going to produce the kinds of change in us that would signify spiritual life from spiritual death. So repentance unto life is not simply our efforts to do better. In fact, we're going to see tonight that repentance is a gift from the Lord that he gives to us that gives us a new attitude and disposition towards our sin and a greater desire to be obedient to him thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Repentance unto life is also not a temporary change of heart. While we're going to talk about the, the difficulties in understanding repentance as something that needs to be ongoing in the life of a sinner for until we are glorified and leave this earth to enjoy the perfect union that he has in store for us in heaven, we will continually be having to deal with our weakness and our shortcomings. But repentance unto life is not a temporary change of heart that is just typically followed by a return to the same sin that brought that guilt just for a moment in the first place. If you are familiar with the parable of the soils, then you have a great illustration in your mind of the kinds of repentance that do not lead to life 
And at the same time, one of those soils does represent the kind of repentance that does lead to life. Jesus begins this parable, which is contained in the book of Mark, in the book of Luke, and in the book of Matthew. He begins this parable telling us of a farmer who casts seed far and wide in various different locations. The sower is representative in the parable of an evangelist who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. The seed is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the soil represents the state of one who receives the gospel, the condition of their heart and mind. So as the sower casts the seed out, some of it lands on the path. Now, a path is extremely hard-packed from heavy foot traffic, and so that that seed, rather, does not even get a chance to spring up. Before it can start to try to grow roots, the birds fly in and they grab that seed and they devour it. And so in that instance, we have a situation where there is really no kind of repentance whatsoever. The gospel falls upon deaf ears and the one who is a slave to their sin just continues on in that slavery, happy to continue to do the things that displeases God and keeps them from spiritual freedom. Some of the seed, however, that is cast out by the farmer lands on rocky soil. And this rocky soil seems at first somewhat more amenable to the seed. There begins to be some growth within that small seed. And Christianity is, is heard. There is what would seem to be a repentance at first. But because this soil is not particularly loose, because roots cannot grow down into this soil, the, the, the ground is too hard packed for true growth. That seedling, which seemed to be life, dies off and never grows to maturity, nor does it bear the fruit that it was intended to one day bear. So here we have a repentance that doesn't really lead to life. We have someone who hears the gospel. There seems to be a reaction that might seem like the person is turning away from their sin and turning towards the Lord, but their understanding of the gospel is very shallow. There isn't a depth. And so when the the difficulties of Christendom begin to become more clear to them, when they realize that there is sacrifice in turning away from your sin and leaving the life that you used to live and living now in trust and dependence upon Christ, then that person counts the cost, realizes it's not a cost that they're willing to pay, and then shrinks away from the gospel. A repentance not unto life. Some of the seed that is cast out lands among the weeds and the thorns. Now here we don't have a soil which is particularly bad, but we do have elements that are keeping a seed from growing up in that soil. The seed that falls amongst the thorns and the weeds, again, seems to grow up at first. But when the things of the world, the temptations of the heart, and the desires of the flesh draw one's eyes and mind away from Christ, we realize there that Jesus is not the true desire of their heart. They would rather have the things of the world, and so they turn away from the truth. And again, we do not have a repentance that leads to life. That plant, that little succulent or the little sproutling now withers and dies because of lack of nutrients. But there is hope in the parable. Some seed that is cast out by the preacher of the gospel, by this metaphorical farmer, does find good soil. It begins to grow, but it doesn't just begin. It continues to grow and its roots dig down deep. It finds nutrients. It finds the water of life. Eventually, that seed grows into a plant that becomes mature and produces a crop. Now, in this parable, we have this interesting 
story that doesn't have anything too remarkable about it. This just sounds like farming. The one remarkable thing about the parable, the one what we might call supernatural thing, is the fruit that is produced by the seed. Uh, a farmer in the days of Christ, with the technologies and advancement they, that, that they had, could expect to hopefully get six times return on their time and investment in, in sowing seed and in planting crops. If they had a particularly good crop that year, a bumper crop, they might see a tenfold uh, return on their efforts and time. But here Christ is saying that this growth is so supernatural that 30, 60, even 100-fold growth is possible with this seed, far beyond what the seed could ever produce on its own. So this last soil, what does it produce? It produces repentance unto life. It produces abundant life. Now, where does that term repentance unto life come from? Where do we identify this first in Scripture? If you've got your Bibles and you want to open up to Acts chapter 11, we're going to see that this is a place where we see this phrase repentance unto life used. And uh, we can hopefully in context understand its use and definition better. So looking at verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. What's remarkable about this? Uh, the word of God first went out to Jews, those who had a background in the Holy Scriptures. But we're hearing now that the apostles are seeing this gospel message, this seed spread to soils that perhaps they never thought it would get to. There was, of course, some skepticism um, in the hearts and the minds of those first Jewish believers. And so Peter has to explain to them this vision that God had recently given to him where a great blanket came down from heaven uh, upon which was spread a feast of sorts, some kind of picnic that contained many foods that were previously prohibited for the faithful Jew. The voice that beamed down from heaven instructed Peter to eat. He was also reluctant to receive this instruction because from his youth, he had never let any of these kinds of forbidden foods cross his lips. But as this vision repeats itself three times, Peter understands that God is showing him something very important, that things are changing, that that which was formerly unclean is now being declared clean by God. In Acts 11.9, Peter records, But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. So who is making what was unclean clean, we see that this is an act of God's hand, right? Peter shortly afterwards is asked to accompany three men to the house of a Gentile who had a vision from God himself. That vision indicated that he would see a man sent of God, a man named Simon Peter, who was going to preach a message to him, the gospel message, so that he might be saved. And in Acts 11, verse 15, the scripture says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, meaning these Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
To the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance, the special kind of repentance that results in a spiritual vitality that was not there before. This repentance is a saving grace. It's a gift that God gives to us that leads us to salvation. Special care should be taken for the believer not to think of repentance as, quote unquote, the price that we pay to experience salvation. We may not try to wrestle the glory of salvation away from Christ so that we can display that trophy in our own hearts or minds. And that is what we're essentially doing if we think of repentance as a product of our greater sensibility, of our stronger spirituality, of our nobler conscience. If we think, well, I feel so terrible for those who didn't have what I have that makes me able to repent when they cannot, we would be thinking wrongly about repentance. Repentance is a graceful gift that God gives, and he gives it to every one of his elect. Verses like this section in Acts chapter 11 help us to carve out a biblical ordo salutis, which is a term that Paul mentioned last week um, as we're preaching on very similar things for the next three weeks. It's worth bringing up again. The order salutis is an approximate order of when things happen regarding our transition from death to life. Now, it's not entirely possible to know the complete order beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, some things that have to do with our transformation and salvation overlap. Some of them probably happen simultaneously, exactly at the same time. And not everyone even agrees about how many elements belong on this list of the order of salvation. But we can discern when certain things happen in relation to others. So a quick understanding of the order salutis, and I have been negligent in my slides. I do apologize for that. Sometimes I get to preaching and I forget the work that I put into trying to help you follow along with me. Here is what a Reformed thinker might see as the order of salutis. It begins with the election of saints. That happens even before the creation of the saints. God and His... Uh, Ultimate knowledge and wisdom has ordained before the creation of anything that he would elect a people to himself for his own glory. Secondly, we have the atonement, which comes when Christ takes on flesh and offers his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross for ours. This is Jesus' work, and it must precede our salvation. After the work of Christ, someone must preach this salvation to us. We call that the gospel call. We might also call this the outward call of Christ where the word is preached to us from sources outside of ourselves, it is accompanied for the believer, for the elect, with an inward call, where that message doesn't just sail through our minds without a, a, a notice, but there is a contemplation of this call. It happens within our hearts. Fifthly, we might think of regeneration coming next. Regeneration is when we are granted spiritual life from our spiritual deadness. And then, as we're going to see in Scripture tonight, following regeneration, we might see the conversion of sinners. And conversion is a combination of both faith in Christ and a repentance that flows from that faith, that belief that He is the only one that can provide for us what is vital to our salvation. Following that would be the combination of justification and sanctification. Sanctification happens when we are made right with the Lord and declared righteous in justification, sanctification in that moment becomes a gift to us as well, where we are now no longer filthy children before the Lord, but we are clean before Him. But that process of sanctification also has an ongoing element where we are practically made more and more clean 
through the work of the word as it washes our hearts and minds and conforms us more to the image of Jesus. And then finally, every list has at the end of it the same thing. This one's not controversial at all. Uh, When God so deems, he will glorify us through death or through returning and bringing us back to be with him once and for all. At that point, our sin is taken away for good and there will be no more need for repentance. Now think about that for just a second. What is something that you can do here to the glory of the Lord that you cannot do in heaven forever? You cannot repent in heaven for sin will have been done away with for good. And so today, as we have this this joy and this honor to be able to repent of our sin and to turn back to the God who is our, our life and our joy, let us not think wrongly about repentance. So regeneration is a one-sided act of God that awakens the soul and provides us with an awareness of both our sin and its only solution. This would be number five on the list that I just mentioned. Before you were regenerated by God, you were dead in your sin. And so Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 6 describes this. I'm not going to read all these verses, but it says, uh, according to the pen of Paul, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. And skipping to verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this beautiful passage roots us in the fact that Christ is responsible for any spiritual good that happens in our hearts. For being dead, you were incapable of knowing the depth of your depravity. You were spiritually unaware of even your deadness. You were incapable, therefore, of turning to the Lord by your own strength because he who is spiritually dead has no spiritual strength or vitality. But at a certain time in your life, Christian, the gospel was revealed and instead of your normal routine of ignoring the gospel, rejecting the gospel, or redefining the gospel so you could think you had some sort of blessing from it when you really didn't, instead of thinking in those corrupt and false ways, you suddenly saw it differently than you had ever seen it before. You agreed with it. You saw your sin to be wrong. You saw that it was an offense to God, a serious offense to Him. You saw that it was deserving of the judgment of hell. And you saw that Christ's sacrifice and resurrection was your only way to forgiveness. You might not even remember this moment that happened in your life, and that's okay. You don't have to have an aha second in your life when you feel like you came to Jesus. The fact is that once it happened to you, a fundamental change appeared in your life, and you passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, never to return. Does repentance precede this regeneration? Now, this is why we're speaking about the order salutis. An Arminian view of salvation would say, yes. They would say, you repent, you see your sin, but you decide for yourself that you need Jesus. You repent, and then God regenerates you and makes you alive in Christ. Repentance is essentially seen as the key that unlocks the door upon which Jesus is expectantly knocking, hoping that you will open and let him in so that he can save you. But the Calvinistic view of salvation differs here. If repentance functions as a gift, as we're going to see in Scripture tonight even more than we already have, 
as Luke describes it here in the book of Acts, then regeneration must then precede repentance. And repentance as a gift of grace is actually a product of the regeneration that God has brought about in our lives. You see, salvation does not come by the way of the covenant of works. It never has. It comes only by the way of the covenant of grace. And so God, in his grace, brings about this repentance in you. And then flowing from that repentance, you actually begin to hate your sin. You actually turn away from your sin. You actually begin to bear good fruit to the glory of this God who has made you alive. Again in Acts, but this time in chapter 2, we think about the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. What does that mean? It means that they were pierced by the truth of the gospel. A truth that had bounced off of their hardened hearts every time they had heard the truth before that. This internal occurrence was the work of the Spirit Himself. This might happen quietly as you sit through your 300th sermon. It might happen in a time of reflection and prayer all by yourself. You can't engineer regeneration, and God alone is the one who makes it come about. But once the inward gift is deposited in your heart, it will be followed by an outward expression of repentance that others can and will see. Hence Peter's instruction to follow through on what the Spirit is doing and repent, be baptized. Let this repentance be real. Let it be an outward expression of what has happened inside of you as the gospel cut through the hardness of your heart. God has to give us a true sense of our sins. And when he does, this also is a fantastic gift to us, even though it can be crushing. It can be heartbreaking at times to see how serious our sin is. You know, when I sit at the freeway and I leave my house to come to church, I always have to go over by the BART and I have to go to this certain right-hand turn that always has this big red arrow. It says no right-hand turn here. And it drives me crazy to have to sit at that light because it was installed after the light was installed and everything was working fine. It was installed to hopefully protect pedestrians who are on foot walking across that intersection to get to the BART station. But on Sunday, when I'm coming to church, the BART doesn't run. So there is literally no one for a mile that way and a mile this way. And I'm sitting staring at this red arrow thinking, this law that has been put upon my life is simply a waste of my gas. It is a waste of my time and it's driving me insane. And I would be lying to you if I didn't come clean and say there are times when I look around to make sure there's no popo nearby and I turn right across that red light because it just seems ridiculous to me. There is no sense in following that ordinance. I don't see any great consequence coming from it. And if I were to just get pulled over, I'd just pay the ticket and be happy to do so. I am a sinner. But when we break the law of God, it is not like that. When you offend the living God, you are not simply going against the best judgment of somebody who has questionable judgment. You are going against the very being 
who breathed you into existence, the one who shared life with you so that you could experience this world that he created himself, this world of wonder and majesty that he invites you to be a part of. When you break his rule, you are committing a personal offense against someone you owe your very life to, that you owe your everything to. We need to understand the seriousness of our sin. And it is a great detriment to our society that sin, sin seems to be just a little thing to us these days. To offend God is no different to most people than just choosing to turn right on that red arrow instead of sitting still for 31 seconds watching nothing happen. We need to know that sin is different than that. God has to reveal to us the wickedness and rebellion of sin because it's not something we take seriously on a natural way. Do the pro-choice advocates who are passionately fighting for their right to act as judge, jury, and executioner to the unborn children in their womb, do they have an iota of an understanding of what an offense to God that actually is? Do they realize that they are trying to steal from God what rightfully only belongs to Him, the right to end life or to make life? They want it to be their choice. They want it to be their dominion. Yet this is something that belongs only to God. To break that law of God, to murder an unborn child, is an offense of incredible magnitude. And yet the world that we live in doesn't see the seriousness of this sin, in large part because they are unsaved and the Spirit has not given them the gift of repentance. God has to reveal the serious nature of rebellion, how detrimental it is to the well-being of sinners when they build walls trying to keep God out of their lives, and how detrimental, how detrimental it is to them when they have to pay the ultimate price of living apart from Christ by going to a fiery damnation and experiencing eternal judgment. The world needs to see how serious this is. You cannot apprehend the mercy of God without having some real grasp of the depth of your sin. There are many churches that would call themselves Christian churches today that preach a gospel that says Jesus just loves everyone. There is no seriousness in sin. There is no confrontation of rebellion. You're okay and I'm okay. Christianity is the soup du jour of the day in religiosity in America. But those kind of churches will perpetually experience a very mediocre level of commitment and passion towards God because that approach to the gospel hides the magnitude of God's gift of grace. When we make sin a small thing, we make the cross a small thing. The prophet of Joel helps us to identify the kind of repentance that God initiates in the hearts of the elect. In Joel 2, verses 12 through 13, the prophet writes, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So we see here through this prophet, Joel, a heart that repents will experience a true change of direction if that repentance is repentance unto life. They will experience a true change of heart and mind not just a time of behavior that suggests a little bit of remorse that quickly 
fades back into the old habit that was repentance-worthy in the first place. There will be an outward physical compliance that accompanies the inward remorse. There will be concession of guilt. There will be concern for those who were harmed by sin. There will be a willingness to repair what was damaged as a result of our law-breaking. These are the marks of a repentance that leads to life. True repentance doesn't, however, become transfixed on our own actions in response to this feeling of remorse. True repentance remains focused on the mercy of God and the extension of this great gift to us. Personal penance is not the drive of true repentance. It is simply the byproduct of true repentance unto life. There is an appropriate degree of shame involved with true repentance unto life. Listen to what Jeremiah has to say about this in chapter 31. He says in verses 18 and 19, I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf, says Ephraim. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Repentance is not a cold business matter. It is not simply a legal transaction. It is a matter of the heart, friends. There will be a brokenness to those who see with clear eyes what they have done to offend the God who they owe everything to. Ezekiel 36, 31 says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. When God enables us to see our sin the way that He sees our sin, it will shake us up. This heartache over our sin is a product of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Zechariah 2.10 says, I will pour upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and they shall mourn. You see the connection there? That the spirit of grace, this gift that God gives to us, is eyes that are clear enough to actually mourn over our sin. This is a gift of the Lord God. But this self-loathing can only stay focused on the self if we refuse to see Jesus as the magnificent remedy for our sin. Our adversary Satan is a great deceiver. And given the opportunity, he will deceive us even about our own repentance. There are many who walk around with this unnecessary burden upon their shoulders. They say to themselves, I know that Jesus forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. You may have counseled somebody through a period of their life like that. You might be in that period right now where you feel this way, that yes, I can see the mercy of God is great, but I just can't seem to let go of my sin. I can't seem to forgive myself for what I did wrong, even if I'm not continuing it. I have compassion for a person who is stuck in this kind of thinking. There is obviously guilt there and remorse, which is good. There is obviously a high standard for holy behavior, which is to be commended. There may very well be some abuse in that person's past that has convinced them that they are worth less than what God says they are worth. But this line of thinking, this idea that Jesus might forgive me, but I can't forgive myself, even if it is the 
product of the terrible circumstances that person has gone through, even if it is the byproduct of mental illness, this kind of thinking needs to be confronted and exposed so that that person can think through things truthfully and according to the word of our God. If you start to feel like you cannot forgive yourself, then it would do you good to ask a series of questions to yourself. I encourage you to ask yourself, am I the best judge of what is right or wrong? Am I the best judge of what is forgivable or unforgivable? If I am not the best judge of that, then why am I now standing here condemning myself when a God of perfect knowledge who sees the depth of my heart and loves me the same, when he says, forgiven, why do I stand here and say, no, I cannot be forgiven? What business is it of yours to forgive yourself? Isn't God the the great judge? And if he has rendered a judgment against you, can you appeal his decision? No. If he has rendered a judgment for you, neither shall you repeal his decision. He knows what he's doing. Trust his judgment. Is it noble or wise for you to be harder on yourself than God is upon you? He's the one who's been offended by your sin. He is the one whose image has been sullied by your breaking of his law. Doesn't he have a right to be harder on you than you do? So it is not noble or wise for you to be harder on yourself than God has chosen to be on you. If he chooses to have mercy and to give you grace, receive it, rejoice in it, thank him for it. There's another question that you should ask yourself. Does your sin have more power to condemn you or does the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus have more sin to set you free? Which is mightier? Which is more effective? If you say your sin is too great, you are essentially saying that the cross of Jesus Christ is a solution too small for your mighty sin. Repent of that kind of pride, friend. Sometimes this feeling of self-loathing can hide and it can almost look benevolent, but underneath it is a a taproot of pride as well. Let us unroot all sin that is in our lives. Let us let the Holy Spirit dig this out of our mind and our heart and make us think rightly about the power of the cross, that it overcomes all of our failures and iniquities. One last question. Would you, Christian, judge anyone else as harshly as you are judging yourself for your own sin right now? The question is likely to be answered, no, I would not. If some other believer came to you weeping in remorse and saying they're not worth life because of the sin that they committed, you would likely point them to the hope that is in Christ. Why do you not point yourself to that same hope? Why do you not preach the gospel to your own heart and remember the baptism that God has brought you into his family with? Perhaps you should reach out to someone and and not rely so heavily on your own judgment about your own heart in this matter. Ask them who you are in Christ and let them through the scripture show you what Christ has declared about your redemption. Sin at its very core is man trying to deny God the right to be God. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were trying to say, I will decide for myself what is good and what is evil. That is God's responsibility alone. We don't have the right nor are we properly equipped to make those kind of judgments apart from him. Sin at its core is man trying to deny God 
the right to be God. God is redeemer. If he wants to redeem you, then stop fighting that. Stop letting the enemy make you believe that you're not worthy of redemption. If Christ would send his son for you, then you're worthy. Not because of who you are, but because of Christ's goodwill to save you. Do not overstep your bounds, Christian. Do not act out of your depth. Leave judgment in the hands of God and rejoice that the God we serve is a God of kindness and mercy and love who is happy to take your burden of sin upon his own shoulders and crush it at the cross so that you don't have to carry it for the rest of your life. Remember, friends, this is repentance unto life, not repentance unto further death. The focus cannot remain on my sin if Christ has paid such a great price to undo the power of my sin. My view of the cross remains short-sighted if I refuse to acknowledge Jesus' power over my iniquity. Let's take a look at a godly example of proper repentance. It's found in the Second Corinthian letter. And uh, I'm almost given up on my PowerPoints now. I'm so negligent in them, but let me skip forward here. Second Corinthians 7, verse 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So here we see from God's word a very clear picture that there are different kinds of repentance. There is a repentance that leads to, to life and it is in every way superior to repentance that does not lead to life. This godly grief that comes to us by the way of the Holy Spirit leads to a salvation without regret. It's a certain kind of salvation, right? A, a kind of salvation that makes us so joyful that the God of the universe has decided to love us despite our unloveliness. This is as opposed to a man-based grief that produces remorse in us that has no remedy, that produces only a, a desire in us to run or to hide our sin or to pretend like we're better than we really are. When Christ truly redeems us, there is no more need to hide. There is mo no more need to pretend that we're something holier than we are because the righteousness of Christ is ours if our repentance has led to life. Repentance under life produces in us, what does the scripture say here in chapter 7? It produces an earnestness, a willingness to see things as they truly are. God, show me what is wrong in me. You've already showed me your love and the power that you have over my sin. So don't hold back. Reveal my iniquity in me. I want this to be made right. That is the earnestness spoken of here in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. It produces also an eagerness an eagerness to clear oneself, to break free from that sin and the associated guilt and shame, to be rid of that failure. It produces in us also an indignation, a proper anger toward that sin so that we will resolve to not sin again. This anger is not just exasperation at our sin. 
It is a determination to order our view of our own sin and redemption under the good direction of God's holy word, to think about it the way God has taught us to think about it. I don't have to be a slave to this sin anymore. God is my Lord and master. We can overcome this with his strength and with his power. We don't have to be victims to our sin like we were before. This indignation decides to continue to fight however long it's necessary until that sin is no longer a a stumbling block to us, a weight tied around our foot. We also see here that fear remains. And this is very interesting. It's an important distinction to recognize that repentance unto life does not totally eliminate our fear of the consequences of sin. We don't have condemnation as Christians anymore, but we should recognize that sin still has a sting to it, not a sting unto death, but a sting whereby if we commit sin, then the Father who cares for us and has authority over us, may chastise us to teach us how to be holy like he is, to grow us up in maturity. And so there should be a fear, a fear of sin, a fear of its consequences, but that fear should never override the confidence we have in Christ to face sin and to conquer it. We should see in this repentance that leads to life, lasting results, a longing to thank our God face to face, to worship him in the age to come, which is only a possibility of God, an only possibility that is is given to us by God as he has cleared our names in Christ and made us new. Longing for this new zeal and a desire for greater righteousness and sanctification, that longing should be a byproduct of this repentance that leads to life. One more scriptural example of this can be found in Luke 19. This last picture uh, that I want to give to you talks about that final point made in 2 Corinthians 7.11 where Paul says, what punishment has come about in you because of your godly remorse? What that means is that the believer who has a true repentance unto life properly embraces an appropriate consequence for their sin if they have broken God's law. Look at Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, Zacchaeus looked up and, or Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This is the crowd complaining about Christ's choice of spending time with Zacchaeus. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So here we have in Zacchaeus a godly grief that led to a repentance unto life. And one byproduct of that is a desire for holy punishment. This is not a penance that he does to make himself righteous. This is Zacchaeus responding in a godly way to his error. 
having seen that he has as a tax collector in the past stolen from those he should not have stolen from. He has extorted those who he was supposed to collect taxes from. He's filled his pockets with extra money. He's saying to Jesus here, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I am willing now to take the punishment of it. Holiness is now important to me. It wasn't before, but in view of what you are, Christ, I'll restore this fourfold. Can a person hope to be saved with something less than this kind of repentance that leads to life? Romans 2, verses 3 through 5 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? To repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The softening of the heart is the signature of Christ's work in you. If God is saving you, you will experience this repentance, this repentance unto life. It is something that we grow in over time. The mature Christian, as they walk with the Lord more and more, will more readily see their error. They will more quickly desire to repent when they have fallen into shameful things. The mature Christian who has walked with Christ for a time and has seen the evidence of his great kindness and love to him grows to love righteousness with more vigor over the days and has less of an appetite for sinful things the more their joy is found rooted in Christ. Things that used to be enticing to them, that used to draw their eye and used to cause them to to struggle will no longer be as tempting as they were before thanks to the maturity that Christ is building up in them through sanctification. This, This sinner who's been saved into a new stage of life learns to hate all sin, not just the ones that he never commits and can look at in others down the tip of his nose, not just those sins that annoy him the most in other people. In fact, he will hate his own particular sin with a special kind of vigor because he's engaged in long-term battle against it and he's seen the damage it can do. Christ has removed the veil from his eyes and he can recognize now that every sin is a detriment to the image of God within man. The maturing Christian thanks God for the confrontation of sin in their lives and learns to see the times when they are confronted with error as the faithful wounds of a friend rather than the attack of an adversary. In the same way that sanctification is at once done and also continues to be done, so too is our repentance saving but also a continuing process in our lives. Do not despair that this is not a case that can be rendered closed on this side of eternity. Remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 that says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But we don't stop there. But the scripture goes on to say in verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here we have two things. We have the promise that we will, as human beings, flawed and limited, continue to battle sin this side of glory. But we also have the great promise that our sin cannot hold us back from God. But rather through Christ, we have this continual mediator 
who when we go to Him and confess our sin and, and ask for the strength to overcome our temptations is happy to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. Confession and repentance don't re-save us, Christian, but they are a compassionate means by which we stay anchored to God in peaceful communion with Him. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, and this is a gift that keeps on giving. Repentance becomes an everyday function of our lives as we walk as imperfect creatures drawn near to a holy and a perfect God. I hope the preaching was clear tonight, but if we have any questions or comments on what was preached, we now have some time to respond to that. Um, So feel free to raise your hand if you have questions or comments. We can discuss that a little further before we dismiss to go this evening. Yes, Ross. Making a point, um, and I think about uh, when I first became a Christian, and, and really probably for the first ten to fifteen years of learning Scripture, I had this uh, understanding that I needed to do a lot. I needed, on my own power, to accept Christ and to live a more sanctified life. I come up with a list of things that I need to do and and if there is a success it was it would lead to me patting myself on the back for being so disciplined and being so responsible and it would lead to um, not exactly this but uh, you know suggesting to God that he made a good choice by saving me you know it's like (laughs) what was I thinking what I appreciate about the uh, Calvinistic theology is how much we give glory to God for all of these things rather than ourselves for the repentance to think that it's all in our power and that when we repent, we say, okay, God, you know, I did what it said in the Bible, now you owe me salvation. It's, it's, it's ludicrous to think that we, like you're talking about all this judging ourselves, it's, it's, a, it's an error. We shouldn't uh, not repent, but we should recognize that it is God that's going to do the, the spiritual work, the supernatural work in us and um, you know all of the the works that we think we are either doing entirely or at least contributing to it uh, it doesn't it doesn't you can't reconcile it to what scripture actually says scripture uh, puts the Porta Salutis in the hands of, of God and that brings glory to Him and the more we recognize that it's all God, the more we will glorify Him. And I think to some that's a little terrifying because we do live our lives before Christ in such a mindset of if something's going to happen good, I've got to do it for myself. 
I've got, to, I've got to deserve it. I've got to earn it. So this idea of grace in some ways is foreign to us. We have to learn to love others with that kind of grace with which we've been loved. We have to learn to rejoice in the fact that we have nothing to bring to the table and that it is simply the powerful love of God that has made us his. And uh, it is a strange and unnatural thing. And that's why God has to overcome our sin nature through Christ on the cross. Um, I'm grateful that he does. So the question then is, um, do I see that tendency to be too hard on themselves in the older generations, but not really in the young? Yeah, where, where today we, people are just more like, just, it's my, kind of a soft salvation. Like, just accept Jesus, come to the cross, and you know what, and you know, all your sins will be forgiven. And you, know, and you just keep asking them to forgive all your sins. Yeah, it really is a person-by-person matter. I, I think that some people just struggle with that. I think some people who've seen the, the majesty of God's gracious love are very impressed by it, but because of a, a, a slanted view of themselves, they feel like they don't deserve it, and they try to be the arbitrator of whether they are savable or not. And um, you'd be surprised how judgmental people, the younger generations, actually are in themselves. And a lot of it's hidden, I think, maybe behind social media, but a lot of these young people that are constantly in front of a computer screen seeing other folks like broadcast this seemingly perfect life, uh, other kids are watching that and thinking, what is so wrong with me? Everybody else seems to have it all together and I'm just this broken mess. And they develop a very, very dark view of who they are. And uh, I think there's still a lot of suicide in, uh, in the younger generations. I think there's still a lot of great, grievous depression. And, uh, and so I think that the enemy is a crafty crafty foe and he knows how to use these things he doesn't really care about the generation he'll use whatever tool in his toolbox to get to you and to try to make you think wrongly about salvation because if you can't see it Christ's way then then you're not going to see the joy in it but I do see a, a great sense of stronger duty to moral standards in the older generation probably than I would in the young as a general general rule Wendy It's also a product of thinking like our culture thinks where everyone has their own version of truth so only you could truly judge yourself if you're the one who decides what's good or bad which is nonsense because if there is any sense of truth then it must be true outside of me it can't just be true within me otherwise we're just making things up as we go uh, and so yeah I think that people even have an innate sense of, of, of the fact that they're doing things that are sinful and wrong and there's some danger to it uh, it's not a saving sense of grief, but I think people know when they're breaking the laws of God and, and they can't be 100% comfortable with it. I think that, the, that there is still a nagging wonder if they're missing something because of what they're doing. But yeah, our, our culture presents some very unique challenges to, to people 
that are probably worse than they were in, in years past, but they're not so unique that no one's ever experienced them before. And they're not so unique that the gospel doesn't still present the only solution and remedy to them. And that's, that should be hope to us and joy to us. That no matter what challenge our culture faces, the gospel is always the answer to it. This seems to be kind of like a modern psychology thing. Say, so you need to forgive yourself. Because I think that the modern psychologist puts the self at the highest level of authority. And so then you need to, you're the arbitrator of your own peace. But like Nick was saying in the sermon, like if, if Christ is forgiving you, then for you to not forgive yourself is subconsciously saying that what he has done is not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Well, I was also having a discussion with him about a long time ago. And he, this was like new in my, my walk. I remember talking to him about how, you know, we should seek a relationship with the Lord. And he was like, no, like, I've done some really bad things. And, like, and I remember, like, hearing him and thinking, like, if you're some big bad sinner, you think that, like, what did you just do? But I couldn't yeah. put that into words. And how you said it, I was like, yeah, well, hopefully when we look at Scripture together like this, we can try to train ourselves to how we might respond in a situation like that. Because I think people who have felt these ways probably have not even weighed the thought that they're insulting God by that sentiment. And then you also have to prepare yourself for another wave of self-guilt if they start to think, oh, uh, man, my, my decision not to forgive myself is so terrible. Look at how bad of a sinner I am. Be prepared for that too. And then say, no, Christ is solution to that sin as well. This, the more sinful we are, the more we need Christ. And it's, it's, it's never, our sin is never uh, cutting us off from, from the possibility of salvation. If Christ is going to save us, he's going to save us. And whatever we did before, whether you're the chief of sinners or you're kind of new to the game, the Lord can overcome it with his grace. Ross. Sorry if I split a hair. Yeah. So... Repentance unto life would be your original repentance leading to salvation. So now you're a Christian for a while, your heart drifts away, you sin, you realize it, you feel terrible about it, and you repent of that sin, and the nature of it really wouldn't be different than the nature of the repentance uh, leading to your salvation. But that wouldn't be repentance unto life because you already have life. So what would you call that repentance? I would call that repentance unto life because it is a repentance that the Lord has provided for you. And it is an ongoing repentance that God gives you as you walk with Him. So it is not only the entrance into the life with Christ that we need to have, but it's also abiding in Christ this life that He gives to us again and again through the work of His Spirit. So yes, there is a sense in which when we say repentance unto life, there is a need for us to repent primarily to, to, in that sense that we're responding to the regeneration that God has caused to happen in our lives. But here in 2 Corinthians 7, when He talks about repentance unto life, He's talking about their true repentance for the sins that have been confronted in the 1 Corinthian letter. So we're not just talking about their salvation properly, we're talking about this ongoing walk with the Lord I think it's, uh, it's interesting to look at the 95 Thesis that we think as Reformed thinkers is so important to the, that, that turn of thought and mind that challenged so many who were in the Roman Catholic tradition uh, to go back to the true gospel and the true understanding of uh, the solas. 
when you look at the 95 Thesis, the very first one, what Martin Luther starts with is all of, repent, all of life is repentance. He begins to challenge this idea that repentance is just the door into salvation. But he says that we are continually needing to repent to our God and to return to him, which is appropriate if you're bringing some questions that might bring about reform because it reminds us that we always need to be reforming. We always need to be looking at our hearts and examining ourselves. And we, when we see sin in us, we rejoice that the power to overcome those sins is ours in Christ, the one who gives life. So I, w- I would say that it's still repentance on the life. So it wouldn't be called repentance unto uh, restored fellowship? I've never heard it called that, right. so I probably wouldn't use that term. But I think the big distinction I want to make is that true repentance is rep- repentance unto life. And, so just and they're, they're saying you're sorry or making an amendment on a personal level but not including God in the matter, that's not repentance unto life. That's just human the repentance. The nature of one and the other are the same realization that you sinned against God that he is your maker and he is the one that has granted you salvation and to you know commit holy treason against him you know makes you feel miserable uh, the only way to return to him is through repentance it's just that technically it's not unto life it's to restore fellowship but I could also see how just as sanctification given by God is an ongoing right. process that perhaps repentance likewise can be looked at in similar, similarly. To me, that's the strongest comp. Is you have a sanctification that is perfect when you get it, but at the same time, it is God is working it out as we go. So that repentance unto life is perfect and saving when we get it, but it is also anchoring us to the Lord as we go. Which is a definitely an eye-opener uh, catechism. Did you do that one, Paul? Sanctification? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the catechism answer, too, talks about what kinds of life being a commitment to a new obedience, even. Mm-hmm. So I think that does imply like, a continual nature. I think Christian, like, even though you're right, Ross, we initially, that first time we were, we were born again, we were saved, that was an initial repentance to life. But I think I could probably do a, a phony repentance. Now that as a Christian, I could do bad repentance as well. Where there's a distinction where I think, you know, where when we're truly repentant, even as a Christian, that's the repentance of life. Rather than a... Than a I'm happened? sorry that makes you feel that way. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, what is the contrast? Godly repentance versus... A worldly sorrow versus... A worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Yeah. Even as Christians, we can... Sometimes we need to repent of our repentance, right? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amen. Any other comments or questions? All right, church family, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll dismiss. Mighty God, we love you, and we're thankful for you, and we hope and pray that um, every time the enemy tries to make us stumble, even if he seems to be successful in the moment, Lord, that we will rejoice in the power that you have over our sin and the love that you have given to us, which binds us to you forever as your children. God, thank you for letting us be a part of your family. Help us to have a great reverence and respect for you. This idea of repentance as power should not in any way make us into reckless antinomians, God. May it never happen that we think lightly of sin and because of the power of the cross, we exploit your generosity and your kindness, Father. But instead, give us a greater sense 
of wonder and awe towards your holiness. Help us to have a desire and a zeal to grow in our truth that we might not need to repent as often. But we are so very grateful, God, that knowing our sinful hearts that you have allowed us to be forgiven as, as many times as necessary. And you will keep us your children. So thank you, God, for this extended grace. And we pray, God, that in the day when we are near to you in glory, when we can no longer repent anymore, that we would not forget the power of what you have done for us now. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.